This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. My name is Jonathan Hearn. I'm going to be chairing the debate, uh, just keeping things moving along. Uh, I'm from Edinburgh University, where we have an MSc in Nationalism Studies. And I have various associations with the journal and with ASIN, and so that's, uh, that's what put me here. Um, I will say a few things generally about the book, just to give a quick introduction to the book. Uh, but of course, uh, the two debaters, uh, David Miller and Chandran Kakathos, will be uh, going into the book in greater detail. But the custom is to sort of give you a quick sketch of what we're talking about, and then I'll make introductions and hand over to these guys. Um, so the book, uh, the main argument of the book, uh, tries to help us understand nationalism and its hold on people's minds. Uh, and it argues that we need to understand that nationalism is composed of two things, a sense of community, the sense of the moral psychology of community, uh, and the idea of popular sovereignty. So the whole book is dealing with the kind of relationship between those two things. Uh, the, the argument about moral community, where uh, uh, he argues that community arises out of a shared heritage of experiences, which can be quite diverse in their origins, uh, and associated feelings of social friendship, that's a key term, uh, by which he means mutual concern, uh, not just formal you know, rule-following obligation between citizens. Um, but he creates a very open and flexible concept of community. It's highly contingent, but nonetheless uh, fateful. And very basic to the argument is getting away from the idea that community is something traditional, something from a lost period of the mine shaft but rather that uh, it is permanently with us and uh, there is no deficit of community and one of the main forms that community takes in the modern world is national community. The, other, the second half of the book moves on talking more about questions of how community interfaces with popular sovereignty uh, and uh, you know, in, in a fairly standard way, uh, the argument is that popular sovereignty is a new form of political legitimacy that arises in the 18th century um, uh, and uh, that modern, modern nationalism takes shape when patterns of national community are variously drawn into the sort of new politics of sovereignty from the 18th century on. So the general conclusions that the book is presenting, that our debaters will go into in more depth, um, uh, is that on the one hand, we should not condemn national sentiments or assume that we can easily transcend a uh, nationally organized world. Uh, so there's a considerable amount of sort of skepticism towards cosmopolitan solutions to nationalism. And on the other hand, uh, uh, this condition uh, of, of, of nationalism and national community will lead to intractable conflicts if we assume that concordance between territory, community, sovereignty can always be achieved. So there's a certain uh, argument in the book about um, uh, being prepared to compromise and live with nationalism, uh, but uh, also being aware that if one is too uh, uh, fixed on the idea of making national interest and solidarity and a sense of injustice, uh, uh, converge too much that uh, this tends to lead to a certain kind of moral blindness that can cause nationalism to become a bit ugly on occasion. Uh, just a, a kind of personal comment on the book. Uh, I had a great pleasure to read. That's the third book I've read by uh, Professor Yak. Um, and uh, the argument uh, is, is a classic one that's not trying to knock some big idea off its perch, but really trying to just deal with a problem in a much more nuanced way. And it raises many interesting kind of side arguments and byways along the way. So it's very much a pleasure to read if you like good, subtle argument. So that's me making a quick introduction to the, to the book, sort of getting, getting us all on the same uh, square. 
And now, uh, without much ado, I will uh, introduce our uh, debate uh, debaters and, and uh, first, uh, Bernard Yap. Uh, Bernard is a, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Lerman Neubauer, Professor of Democracy and Public Policy uh, in the Department of Politics at Brandeis University. Uh, his work is on political theory, history of political thought, cultural pluralism, and nationalism. Many people here may, are most likely to have become familiar with his work through an essay called The Myth of Civic Nation, which kind of gets reworked in this book and is, was in a volume by Ronald, ba Ronald Biner that a lot of students get exposed to these days. Um, uh, he did his first degree at uh, Toronto, uh, where Alan Bloom introduced him to Plato. So we have Alan Bloom to thank for uh, some of what we're doing tonight. And then uh, studied for his PhD with Judith Sklar at Harvard University, and is the author of five books. Uh, this is the fifth in that series, uh, also including <coughs> Fetishism of Modernities, Epical Self-Consciousness and Contemporary Social and Political Thought, which I suspect kind of develops some of the themes from his first book, um, uh, The Longing for Total Revolution. Uh, he's also in the, before that a book that was kind of a tribute to Judith Schwarz's work called Liberalism Without Illusions. And uh, before that, a book called Problems of Political Animal, Community, Conflict, and Justice in Aristotelian Political Thought, which if you're interested in the ideas about community in this book, I think a lot of the groundwork for some of that thinking is, comes out of that book. Um, on my left, our first speaker will be Tantan Kukathas, who is Chair of Political Theory here in the Department of Government at LSE. Works on history of liberal thought, contemporary liberal theory, multiculturalism. Uh, his uh, uh, book, The Liberal Archi Archi Archipelago, uh, a, a Theory of Diversity and Freedom, was with Oxford Press in 2003. He's also written on the work of John Rawls with Philip Pettit and Hayek, uh, uh, Hayek and Modern Liberalism. On my right is David Miller, uh, who is a fellow and professor of political theory at uh, politics in politics and IR at Nuffield College in Oxford, uh, written uh, many books, uh, but uh, his areas are political theory, justice and equality, nationalism and citizenship, problems of territory, and more recently, issues of immigration. Uh, most recent book, Justice for Earthlings, uh, Essays in Political Philosophy from Cambridge uh, University Press, so hot off, go buy that one. Uh, uh, national Responsibility for Global Justice from Oxford in 2007, Citizenship and National Identity from Polity Press, and then On Nationality, which probably first kind of uh, introduced him, uh, uh, people studying nationalism to his work probably in, in 1995 with Clarendon. So those are the introductions. Uh, uh, we want to have as much time to hear our speakers as possible. Um, We're allowing 10, 15 minutes for speakers. I, you know, uh, we're not going to be Getting people with a ruler if they're off, but we're going to try and stay close to time. Uh, and uh, Chandran will start by talking about uh, more about some of the community aspects of the concept of community in, in the book. Uh, David will follow then with uh, focusing a bit more on the question of liberalism and nationalism, and then we give Bernard a bit longer time to reply, uh, and then we have some time for questions from the audience. So that's the order of things, and without much further ado, that's over. Thank you very much. Um, well, I won't tell you how good a book it is. It is very good, but um, in the interest of saving some time, I will leave Go ahead. all the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, you need more time to respond to my criticisms. So, uh, so nationalism was supposed to have gone away, yet persists, and is perhaps a growing force in the world still. And attitudes towards it have ranged from despair, uh, the inability of human beings to shape off the primitive tribal attachments that lie at the source of group conflict, to contempt for the susceptibility of people to this destructive ideology, 
to an aspiration to reconceive national loyalty in civic terms, such that the old re re reality of passion for particular groups is transmuted into a new reality of commitment to a community of citizens. Bernard Yack has shown convincingly that these understandings of nationalism and the attempt to address the problems that nationalist uh, sentiment pose are inadequate. We need a better understanding of what nationalism is, as well as a more sophisticated understanding um, <coughs> of it theoretically and institutionally, or so he suggests. I think he's given us a much clearer picture of the nature of nationalism, but I'm not sure what he has supplied us with gives us the best answer to the problem of how to deal with the reality of group attachment. The problem may lie in the original aspiration. His commitment to the liberal project of rendering coercive authority accountable to the people who create it may be one that's yet to be fulfilled. We shall see. His view is that liberals have failed to tell a convincing story that recognizes the particular attachments human beings have, and at the same time that explains how they can see themselves as also part of a larger whole that exercises power over them. They failed first because they failed to appreciate the importance of communal sentiment, because they did not understood the moral psychology of community, and second because they've been distracted by wrong moral theory and therefore pursued poor institutional remedies, trying either to foster self-determination or suppress difference. He thinks we can tell a better story and come up with better institutions. While he's presented us with a very sophisticated analysis, and I'm substantially in agreement with much of it, I'm not sure he has the moral psychology quite right, in as much as I um, think he may have overstated the importance of understanding it. And I also have some doubts about the institutional lessons he proposes to draw. So I'm going to talk about these two things. Firstly, about the moral psychology, again, about the institutions. So starting with the moral psychology, uh, Professor Yak wishes to reject two myths, uh, the myth of ethnic and the myth of civic nationalism. The first, he says, tries to assimilate the notion, uh, oh, sorry, the nation to a natural community, suggesting that peoples are distinctive or if the extreme, even autochthonous, as if they sprung from the earth or the lands they inhabited. The second uh, myth tries to present the national community as a chosen community, making nationhoods something we construct for our own purposes. Yet community is something that is neither wholly natural nor wholly artificial, it's something in between. We can shape and transform communities, but not easily or at will. We come into the world as members of communities that draw up with attachments to them. Our moral life is substantially a product of our communal life. We are capable of developing intense communal loyalties, but also of stepping back and reviewing our commitments particularly to the extent that we're members of different communities and recognize each as a partial community. The good of community is that's something we should neither overrate nor despise. And nationalism, then, is more than just a strong attachment to one's nation and its members, but the result of the working of more complex forces. It gets its impetus from our capacity for communal loyalty or attachment, but is given shape by beliefs we acquire about political legitimacy. It's not just a matter of loyalty to a group, but neither is it something that can be created among people who lack that sensibility or feeling of attachment. Uh, now, this seems to be substantially correct and perhaps even illuminating. Uh, from this analysis, he wants to go on to argue that the moral problem with nationalism 
arises out of the intensification of communal hostility inspired by this convergence of sentiment and conviction rather than from the intrinsic limitations of either communal loyalty or popular sovereignty. The problem, he says, is not our disposition to form contingent communities like the nation, but the propensity to become hostile to other communities when national sentiment strengthens. Yet the obvious questions to ask are why such sentiments should develop in this way and why this should inspire communal hostility. The thought seems to me that the greater the sense of group loyalty, the more powerful must become the antipathy towards other groups. But why must it be this way? And if it must, what is driving this development? I think what's missing in Yak's analysis is an answer to these questions, and much turns on this. If the answer is that what inspires communal hostility is just the growth of national sentiment, it's hard to see what exactly this answer is telling us. To fill the explanatory gap, I suggest we must recognize the role of particular actors, political elites, as to say, in this process. For national sentiment, it's not something that springs spontaneously from the community, but it's rather something that is provoked into existence by particular actors who have something to gain by generating it. Communal memberships, as Jacques recognized, are partial memberships to the extent that people belong to different groups or communities. Not all attachments we have are of equal importance, but the salience of one or another is not given by the nature of the group or community as such, but by the circumstances that shape beliefs. For example, in the interwar years, many Jews saw themselves as Germans first and Jews second, but after the war, this changed dramatically. One important cause shaping communal loyalty or attachment is the efforts of political elites to create a sense of commitment to a particular community. Such elites not only create the sense of commitment, though success is never guaranteed, but also create the community to the extent that uh, it defines and gives intellectual substance to the group that it defines or identifies. So the efforts of Shiv Shena, the Hindu nationalist political movement created by Baal Thakurai in 1966 is an example of this. None of this is to suggest that anyone could create communal loyalty out of nothing. Um, what marks the skillful political activist is the ability to discern which sensitivities to highlight and exploit in pursuit of an agenda. But the efforts of such actors are important if communal identities and loyalties are to emerge or intensify. Now, the reason this is important is that Yak's analysis of the moral psychology of the community is the basis for an explanation of the relations between groups. And the thought seems to be that the psychology explaining commitment or attachment is important for our understanding of why there might be different commitments that lead ultimately to conflict between groups or lead to conflict between national minorities and the states in which they are embedded. But is it the case that in such instances, the conflicts that arise are the result of differences between collectives themselves rather than the product of the political activity of particular elites who mobilize groups in order to secure their own ends? This is not to deny the reality of group-based difference or the fact of antipathy between peoples, but it is to question the importance of group attachment or loyalty as an explanation of intergroup relations or group conflict. 
I raise this partly because I'm struck by how often political theorists allude to the problem of group conflict in an effort to explain the function of political institutions, which are established in order to remedy a pre-political problem. The most commonly invoked example, also mentioned in uh, this book, is that of the so-called wars of religion in 16th century Europe. The standard argument of political theory is that this was a period of religious conflict among states, divided on matters of doctrine, and that peace was secured by the establishment of the modern state as a secular political institution. What is missing from this analysis is an appreciation of the fact that conflicts, the conflicts in question in the 16th century, were not religious conflicts between warring Protestant and Catholic sects, but political conflicts between republics, principalities, and kingdoms, contending with one another and with larger states, as well as with powerful actors within the Holy Roman Empire. Warring factions were divided not along religious lines, but political ones, since some Catholic princes fought other Catholic princes, and some Protestant rulers allied with Catholic ones to combat other Protestant rulers. These were not wars of religion, but wars among religious entities in a world in which everyone was religious. There did exist religious disagreements, but, and there was religious persecution, but this does not mean that the conflicts were the products of differences of religious conviction among the peoples of Europe, rather than the political ambitions of rulers looking to gain territory or consolidate their hold on power. I don't think we would understand these conflicts better if we try to get a better grasp of the moral psychology of religious commitment. When it comes to national or ethnic conflict, I think a very similar story could be told. Ethnic groups and nations have coexisted peacefully in some circumstances and entered into bloody uh, and bitter conflicts in others. The question is, why the difference? The answer cannot lie in a better understanding of the nature of ethnic or national attachments, since that is the constant. The answer has to look more closely at the way in which ethnic identities are created or consolidated and national sentiments intensified. Where Yap is right to address the problem of understanding the moral psychology of community is in trying, uh, sorry, in trying to understand nationalism is in his effort to answer or criticize those who think that nationalism can be dismissed as an irrational attachment overcome by the establishment of a civic identity. But a fuller understanding of the phenomenon needs a greater emphasis on its root in political affairs. Let me turn then to what Yap has to say about the way in which we should respond to nationalism institutionally. There are two propositions he rejects. One that panders to nationalism by pushing for national self-determination, and the second that hopes to wash it away by creating cosmopolitan democracies. I will focus on his critique of the cosmopolitan alternative, since it forms the basis of his own institutional recommendations. The cosmopolitan democrat comes in two varieties, one vulgar and one sophisticated. My terms, not his. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I said the novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, the vulgar cosmopolitan uh, simply envisages the dereliction um, of national sovereignty, which will simply disappear as a force in the world. But the sophisticated cosmopolitan is one who sees it uh, rather as an ineffective means of dealing with the problems of the modern world, though one that persists nonetheless. Both see the national sovereign state as something that has had its day. Now, Yat's view is that the principle of popular sovereignty 
is the principle that lies at the heart of the modern understanding of political legitimacy. A commitment to or belief in this principle has spread. Um, as it spread, our understanding of political community has to be nationalized, um, or has been nationalized, as we have come to regard the community um, as defined or shaped by peoples who share some common destiny. And our understanding of nationalism has been politicized as the people must exercise its power to legitimize authority. Nationalism and popular sovereignty go hand in hand. And that means that nationalism is not going to go away anytime soon. The worry, however, is that sovereign states acting with the authority of the people can also exercise tyrannical power over the subjects. And the more secure it is um, as the authority instituted by the people, the more dangerous it can be. Such a state would be troubling because there might be no area into which it could not reach to legislate since it is autonomous once authorized by the people. It would also be troubling because if it is authorized by the collective, there are no rivals to challenge its exercise of power. The nation, state, would turn out to be an unlimited and oppressive one. Now, Yap articulates this worry in order to meet it head on, but concludes that the problem is manageable under liberal democracy if we have a proper appreciation of the virtues of structures of internal sovereignty. States need not be understood as Hobbesian or Bordinian sovereigns, unlimited and undivided in their authority. They can be both limited and divided. Now, to explain how this might be possible, Yap turns to John Locke. The worry that Hobbes and Baudin addressed was that if the arbitrariness of authority was checked by the medieval mechanisms of independent and plural centers of power, individuals would simply be subject to the goodwill of notables, even if this did provide individuals with refuge from the power of the state. Internal sovereignty was dangerous. But Locke solves this problem by dividing authority investing sovereign authority in the people as a whole and giving coercive authority uh, in the structure of political institutions. Modern liberal states, Yak argues, have adopted this division in their political institutional arrangements and thereby tamed absolutism to supply limited government. Constitutional government has given us the best of all possible worlds. Now my worry here is that Yak is too sanguine about success of modern constitutional states as institutions of limited government. What he has tried to do is to revise our understanding of community, to present nationalism and popular sovereignty as working together to underpin uh, legitimate authority. Liberalism and nationalism might be intention, but in the end, the modern nation state can work to fulfill liberalism. Yet here much turns, I think, on judgments about the nature of the modern state and the extent of our success in preserving limited government, on judgments of how benign such states really are. I think there are substantial grounds for skepticism if one considers the extent of the modern state's capacity to monitor its citizens and control its borders. Not even the absolute states of early modernity could establish a direct relationship with every individual within its borders in the way that developed states of today can. Today, we take for granted something which would once have been considered astonishing, a 
the states have the right to not with all the forces in the community to make war, to make peace, to constrict life, to tax, to establish and disestablish property, to define crime, to punish disobedience, to control education, to supervise the family, to regulate personal habits, and to censor opinions. If that is right, the modern constitutional state can deal quite well with nationalism because it relies on the development of national sentiment to secure its own foundations. And by structuring itself appropriately, it is able to limit the power of particular groups or communities. The problem that arises here, however, is that a unitary state cannot be limited, for there are no forces to oppose it. As the English pluralists recognize, a limited state could only exist where social space is so, complete, so complexly refracted into a network of associations, that is where associations were not intermediate associations squeezed between state and individual at all. It would not do to subject the diversity of publics um, to the authority of a single sovereign will. To the extent that such a will is asserted and its legitimacy is insisted upon, what is bound to happen uh, is that some part of the whole will establish its dominance over the entirety. The success of Yak's conceiving of the nation as a kind of community that can be given expression in a modern liberal state may be that it describes accurately what has emerged in the world in which we live, but I'm not sure that the story it tells is altogether reassuring. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I'm very also very pleased to have a chance to comment on uh, Bernard Jack's book, which I, I much enjoyed. It's beautifully written. It wears its scholarship very lightly, but it's a deeply scholarly book. And it poses um, a strong challenge to the kind of position that uh, that I hold that's come to be called liberal nationalism. And it's particularly strong because it's mounted from a point that's quite close by, as Chandran has, has uh, brought out, um, Bernard Jack is, is, is critical of uh, cosmopolitan views, doesn't think that we should all become citizens of the world, uh, and yet, at the same time, he's worried about nationalism understood as an attempt to make the nation and the territorial state coincide geographically. So in other words, he wants to ins insist that nation and people, where people means the set of individuals who are the holders of uh, sovereignty, the people who are subject to the authority of a state, these must be kept apart. And national, the problem of nationalism is it brings these two together, and this can lead it to all kinds of negative outcomes that liberals will find abhorrent. And so it's a challenge to, uh, to liberal nationalism, as it's usually understood. So I'm gonna, my, my comments uh, really deal with two issues. One is the concept of nation that you find in, in the book and the, the attempt to remove from that the political elements that give rise to nationalism. And the other issue is territory and uh, Bernard Jack's attempt to drive a wedge between nation and territory in his argument against national self-determination. So, according to Yak, a nation is a community of people who feel a special concern for one another and who are picked out from the rest of humanity 
by virtue of sharing a cultural heritage. Now, what makes that heritage up is quite variable. He mentions language, relics, symbols, stories of origin, memories of traumatic experience, and so on. And he also emphasises that each person can pick and choose among the elements that go into the heritage, stop some and leave out others. And I'll come back to that question of selectivity in a moment. But I want first to focus on the question, what exactly does it mean to share a cultural inheritance as a criterion of group membership, group defined by the sharing of a cultural inheritance? Because that's, I think, less straightforward than it might at first seem. And I can bring that out by uh, taking Bernard Jack's own example of the American in Paris. And this is a woman, I'll just quote Bernard, this woman may know more about French history than a particular native. She may even speak a purer French, but that does not make her a member of the French nation if she developed a facility in French culture in the course that she chose to take at American University. Now, uh, according then to Yak, this woman, this American in Paris, knows the French cultural heritage, but doesn't in the relevant sense share it. <coughs> What does that mean? So what, what's disqualifying the American in Paris from being a member of the French nation? So as I can see, there are sort of three possible answers to that question. Let's just go through them. The first answer is that the woman, although she's immersed in French culture, remains an American citizen. So her political loyalties remain with the US. But Bernard Jack wants to draw a clear distinction between nationality and political citizenship. So on his account, it can't be her lack of French citizenship in the formal sense that prevents her from being counted as part of the French nation. Possibility two is that the woman acquired her French culture in the wrong place. She says, he says he studied French at American University, presumably was brought up there. But that would give us the place criterion would give us a territorial notion of <coughs> nationality. Uh, in other words, the nation of people who were born and raised in a particular territory. And again, uh, as I said earlier, Bernard wants to draw a line between nation and territory. So can't, I think, refer to territory as the distinguishing mark. Third possibility, we've had citizenship, we've had place. Third possibility, Identity. Woman doesn't identify herself as French. She loves French culture. She knows it better than many natives, but she still thinks of herself as an American abroad. Now, intuitively, that sounds right. But then there must be more to identity than simply the sharing of a cultural inheritance. Because in the, in the ordinary sense, she does share in that cultural inheritance. When she meets with French people, she can discourse with them in her perfect French. She can discuss the relative merits of Camus and Sartre. She can remind them about St. Bartholomew, if they've forgotten about it. So the missing element isn't the cultural inheritance, but the way she regards it. So what exactly is missing? Well, my suggestion is the fact that this woman does not regard herself as engaged in any kind of political project to protect and develop those elements of culture that she happens to know and admire. In other words, it's the political dimension that's lacking here, and that's the one that Bernard Jack wants to exclude. She doesn't 
She's not bothered about French citizenship unless it's necessary to prolong her stay in Paris. Now, if instead she acquires citizenship because she wants to become involved politically, for example, perhaps she wants to protest about Qataris buying up all the Impressionist art or something of that sort, then I think she's well on the road to becoming French in the national sense. So um, my point then is that although co-nationals do indeed share in a cultural heritage, the fact of sharing by itself isn't enough. What's missing is a certain practical stance towards the heritage, namely a collective commitment to protect and extend it into the future. Now the second point I want to make here is about the picking and mixing of the inheritance of the heritage. Are we as free as uh, Yak suggests to choose which elements we adopt? If I'll quote him again, it's the affirmation of a shared cultural heritage as a source of mutual concern and loyalty that makes a national community <coughs> rather than the sharing of any particular beliefs, practices or institutions. In a nation we share, to use Renan's expression, a rich legacy of memories and other cultural artifacts regardless of whether or not we're inclined to employ or celebrate the contents of that legacy. Now that's kind of helpful. If you want, if you want to um, reconcile a national membership with sort of liberalism, that's, that sort of picking and mixing is obviously a helpful uh, element. But is it really true? I think it depends on which parts of the cultural heritage we're considering. So it makes sense if we're thinking, for example, about national sports. So Americans play baseball, Canadians play hockey, English play cricket. You can recognize that as part of the heritage, even if you hate cricket or whatever. But is it true of all the elements that make up the heritage? What about, in particular, defining historical events? American Revolution, World War II, for example. Well, first of all, it seems to me hard to deny that as a member of the relevant nation, you must believe in the significance of these events. You must agree that these are indeed defining events. And it seems to me also that you have to adopt a certain attitude towards them, or at least an attitude that falls within a relatively limited range. For example, if you're an American, you have to believe the revolution was justified. It was the moment that gave birth to the new nation. <coughs> Shackles of colonial rule were thrown off. Rival views, such that it was really just the first American civil war, Americans fought on both sides, you can't hold that view and still uh, remain part of the American community. Or if, you, if a Briton looks back at World War II, he or she must think it's a matter of national pride that in 1940 Britain stood alone against Hitler's Germany. So the alternative view put forward by you know, Halifax and Halifax's supporters that the right thing to do was to negotiate a peace, that falls outside the legitimate range. Now, just to be clear, when I say that certain views are impermissible to hold, I don't, of course, mean that you should be prohibited from expressing them. Uh, I don't mean you should be kind of censorship about people who want to defend the Halifax view. Um, liberal rights and freedom of expression are not an issue. The point is that somebody who holds a strongly contrary view on one of these issues, to that extent, I think, renounces their national identity. And I think it's also legitimate for elements of the consensus to be handed on through, for example, education over generations. So if you're a liberal 
who thinks that it's actually positively desirable for everything to be challenged, everything to be criticised, everything to be put in question, you're going to find the existence of nations an impediment to your wish. So I think that a liberal nationalist is a particular kind of liberal, one who appreciates the truth of a remark of Tocqueville's that I quoted as the epigraph to our nationality. Tocqueville said, in order that society should exist, and a fortiori that society should prosper, it's necessary that the minds of all the citizens should be rallied and held together by certain predominant ideas. And this cannot be the case unless each of them sometimes draws his opinions from the common source and consents to accept certain matters of belief already formed. So that's the, 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 the view that I also endorse, but also think is a necessary part of what it means for a nation to exist. Okay, finally then, on to the issue of territory and uh, Yak's claim that nations are not, in essence, territorial groups. He claims that territorial issues only arise when the idea of national self-determination appears on the scene. For that's understood to involve nation as holding <coughs> exclusive rights over the territory that it regards as its own, and that immediately opens the door to conflict. So, um, Yak's view um, is that uh, that um, sorry, I'm kind of lost my place here. Um, yeah, Yak argues here that national self-determination, as it's commonly understood, involves a kind of inner contradiction because the attempt to make the borders of states line up with national boundaries clashes with the idea of popular sovereignty, which is the claim of all those who permanently reside in a territory to act as a source of authority that governs it. So either you begin with nations defined subjectively, or you begin with politically defined territories, and those who, as a matter of fact, live in them, but you can't start from both at once. And that's a powerful challenge. And many would say it's borne out by the kind of territorial conflicts that we see around us in the world today. But I want to meet it first by casting a critical eye on Yak's claim, and here I quote again, that the same or overlapping lands can belong to more than one nation, since the members of national communities not only frequently dwell side by side in the same territories, but can also recall the same sites of past greatness and trauma. I want to take the residence issue and the historical memory issue separately. It seems to me that cases in which members of two distinct nations are intermingled throughout a territory are quite rare if we discount cases in which populations have been deliberately moved to cement political conquests, as happened in the case of Russian immigrants to the Baltic states after World War II, or more recently to uh, the Han Chinese being sent into occupied Tibet. <coughs> Much more commonly, we find large areas overwhelmingly occupied by two or more distinct nations, and then a borderland area in which national identities are mixed. Borderlands are disputed, but neither nation makes claim over the whole of the other's territory. In fact, the only case I can think of where you find an across-the-board dispute between rival groups 
claim the whole of a territory is the current situation in Israel-Palestine. Clearly, what, I'm, what I call debatable lands are going to be hard cases for the principle of self-determination and may require ingenious solutions involving power sharing and so on and so forth. But even here, I think, they don't quite uh, match the description of complete intermingling across territory. Well, what next about the sites of past greatness and trauma? That these play a large role in national memory isn't in dispute, but in most cases there's a clear distinction between sites that fall within the homeland and those that fall outside. So next year, hundreds of thousands of visitors from Britain, Germany, France, other places are going to congregate in the city of Mons to recall the traumatic battle of World War I, but nobody supposes that Mons is in any other country than Belgium. So any country with an imperial past are going to, is going to have sites of greatness and trauma outside the homeland without believing that it has any territorial claim to the places where they occurred. And Turks who recall what happened in 1683 don't think that they have any residual claim to Vienna, for example. Indeed, I think one effect of the consolidation of nat national territory is to draw a sharp line between homeland proper and what you might call the theatre of national history, which may indeed have a much wider stage. So the difficult cases are going to be ones where homelands remain in dispute. So Yak uh, cites the example of Kosovo, but the point about Kosovo is that it's not just a site of past greatest and trauma for the Serbs, but also an area in which Serbian and Albanian populations remained in, intermingled until very recently, still do to some extent. Whereas in the great majority of instances, nations can happily share historic sites because only one of them at most regards the site as belonging to their national territory. Now, um, even if reflecting on these cases will convince you that national self-determination and popular sovereignty don't collide as sharply as Jack suggests, it might be said there's still a conflict of principle because popular sovereignty requires that since the people are defined as those who inhabit a given territory with fixed boundaries, those boundaries must be treated as sacrosanct, whereas the national principle says redraw them whenever this better serves the cause of national self-determination. But I wonder whether popular sovereignty always prohibits boundary redrawing. So was it a violation of popular sovereignty when the two halves of Germany reunited, when the two halves of Czechoslovakia split? If a demos votes to reconstitute itself in one or other of these ways, why isn't that an exercise of sovereignty rather than its negation? There's wasn't just one last point I want to make here. Um, can't develop it fully. And that's that if popular sovereignty is to have more than merely a formal content, if it means that people should actually exercise real control over their government, then the composition of the people, not merely its geographic location, is going to matter. So the claim of liberal nationalists is that democracy works best when its constituents overwhelmingly share a national identity for reasons having to do with the presence of trust and the need to reach agreements that all can accept. And despite the oft-repeated claim that there's no democratic way 
of deciding where the boundaries of the demos should fall, there may indeed be democratic reasons for drawing political borders in such a way that they correspond to national boundaries where possible, and then exercising ingenuity in those relatively small number of instances where that cannot be made to work. So if that's true, then I think the relation between national self-determination and popular sovereignty may actually be one of mutual support and not the mutual undermining that uh, Bernie Yak asserts. Thank you. Without introducing a distinction without a difference. 
Um, it's the right to nationals, the idea of the right to national self-determination that I think is incoherent, not the idea of national self-determination itself. Um, challenging the idea of the right to national self-determination challenges many versions of liberal nationalism since uh, the indication of rights, uh, of rights, uh, in particular rights to national self-determination is one of uh, liberalism's greatest, and to my mind, most disastrous contributions to the, uh, to the growth and spread of nationalism. Um, the argument has to do with the way in which uh, groups may claim territories. Um, can't really get into the argument, the argument extensively, but uh, what I suggest is that while um, uh, communities can't make claims to rights to control territory without invoking a principle of popular sovereignty, the rights of people, the inhabitants of already defined territories to control the territories within which they live. What's lacking is the way of making a right claim to control the territory that you associate with your nation, uh, apart from invoking a principle of popular sovereignty, which demands that you keep borders intact. Um, uh, I said that schematic, don't, don't worry about it. I actually call this the antinomy of collective self-determination, a bit of bravado. Um, but the point is, it's the right, claiming a right to national self-determination that I think can't be uh, defended. Um, uh, and liberals should resist this idea because in fact leads to uh, the deepening uh, and intensifying conflicts rather than uh, their uh, removal. Um, I didn't think that this was a particular, would be a particular problem uh, for Professor Miller because he's one of the few liberals, defend, defenders of nationalism, who uh, make that distinction between the idea of national self-determination and uh, a right to national self-determination. Indeed, I even have a footnote <laughs> where I say, uh, like Professor Miller says. Um, still, however, uh, it's clear uh, that Professor Miller thinks that the tensions between national and political conception, uh, national and uh, yet political divisions of territory is uh, less problematic than I do. Um, uh, I think he agrees with me that it's plausible that more than one nation can uh, 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 attach itself, attach its culture to particular territories um, in a way that modern conceptions of self-determination make problematic, but suggested it's rather infrequent. The Palestinian-Israeli uh, situation should be seen as an outlier rather than a paradigmatic case. Um, needless to say, I think it happens more frequently. Uh, I had, particularly I had in mind uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern European nations um, uh, whose uh, problems, uh, I think, had all kinds of problems, but uh, some of many of the conflicts and problems Tend, uh, tend to come from the fact that they uh, share sites of national, uh, remembered national greatness. This is a subject, by the way, of a, a great essay that, that doesn't get nearly enough attention by Ishpan Nibo called The Distress of Small European States. Um, I recommend it very highly. Um, Professor Miller asked, do uh, Turks still demand Vienna as part of their national territory? No, but again, the Turks never conquered Vienna. Uh, as it turned out, no, but obviously, no, they don't. Do the Greeks demand Constantinople? Yes. Wow. 
<laughs> they certainly used to, and some may still do. It's the great idea of Greek nationalism. Um, uh, if they don't anymore, at least publicly, it's because they got beaten that so badly in their attempt to achieve the, you know, the great idea of, uh, of Greek nationalism. So disastrously that it led to the, ex you know, the expulsion of Greeks in the Turkish territory and the, pop the great population exchange. Um, so while the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is not necessarily paradigmatic, I don't think that it's completely out of the ordinary. It may appear to be so only because, and especially in Europe, we're looking at a map that's been rearranged by so many violent upheavals that accidentally or purposely unmingled populations and redirected their, uh, their sense of their territory to uh, more constrained spheres. Uh, most, of, uh, Europe, most of the Western European countries went through that unmingling long enough ago that uh, cultural heritage no longer seems to point to shared territories. But what if um, England lost the Hundred Years' War? You know, then maybe the Dordogne would be remembered as a, you know, uh, and, you know, fought and fought over or fit in two different visions of a, uh, of a cultural heritage rather than just a great place to have a vacation, the French equivalent of Tiantichar. Um, so uh, I do think that there's more there. Now, um, now, let me turn now to Professor Miller's comments about uh, na national community and national belonging. Um, here, I think it, uh, his uh, concern is reversed. In the first uh, issue, he was, I think, suggesting that I was um, uh, uh, too hard on liberal nationalists. Now, I think he's suggesting I'm too easy on them with regard to national belonging, making it too easy to be uh, to belong to a national community by making membership into it in it too selective. Uh, that makes it easier for liberals not to worry about how national community uh, conflicts with uh, their commitment to say autonomy, cultural or value pluralism, whatever uh, version of liberalism that they uh, are associated with. Now, here I think there's more of a disagreement between us, um, uh, since I really do devote a great effort to showing that uh, the sense of national community does not, is not nearly as constrained um, as it's ordinarily understood to be. Um, and the reason for it is uh, that uh, I advocate uh, what I acknowledge is a relatively unusual understanding of the national community uh, with its focus on shared cultural heritage. That is heritage rather, shared heritage rather than shared practice, shared belief, shared um, uh, experience. Um, it's not the sharing of any particular cultural practice, memory, belief, ritual, celebration of great heroes, but rather an sharing an inheritance of a contingent and often incoherent package of beliefs, cultural practices, um, inheritance of memories um, that I think defines national community. That is to say, a national community is a group of people who feel uh, feelings of mutual concern and loyalty for others who share this particular package. Um, a package that, you know, you uh, sometimes open and use and sometimes much of you, you, leave, you know, leave in the closet only to bring out maybe later on, like the uh, lowland Scots eventually brought out kilts to wear uh, as, as 
requires a, a, a sense of nationality. Um, a shared heritage, a shared sense of lineage, um, which combines in very, as I said, contingent and often inco you know, not particularly consistent ways for these practices, memories, etc. That's what I, I'm suggesting defines a national community. So my uh, polished, uh, you know, my, my refined American uh, with her uh, polished French um, is not French because of the way in which she acquired her language and culture um, as something she chose to pursue um, as rather than something she inherited with people around her and shared a sense of that, of that inheritance. It's easy for her to disregard all the accidental and distasteful things that go along with the French uh, cultural heritage. She chose it for the language of Proust and the art of Poussin. Um, but indeed, she might, she might actually engage in a project, a project of French cultural preservation. She can join with others who are as devoted as she is to French culture. In a, uh, and form an association uh, for the preservation, a world association for the French, you know, association for the preservation of French culture. Gallophiles of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your Big Macs. Um, you know, she could do all of that, but she would be inspired by her vote. What would, what would move her was a shared interest in preserving a particularly appreciated culture, which she chose of all the other possibilities out there. That's different than a natural, uh, than sharing a national heritage, which you know, um, uh, amounts to, as I said, a question of inheritance. Um, now, uh, if, if, if it's cultural heritage, rather than a particular beliefs or practices that defines, a sharing of cultural heritage, rather than beliefs or practices uh, that defines the national community, then there's a lot more room for maneuver for liberals who are concerned about constraints on economy and pluralism. Um, because it doesn't require a commitment to any particular belief to be or practice uh, to be a member of a national community. Now, Professor Miller disagrees and suggests there must be at least some basic foundational belief or affinity uh, that members of a nation must share. Now, I don't think he uh, agrees with people who sort of talk as if Nations have culture, uh, uh, have cultural constitutions. You know, um, like this is the founder and foundings, cultural foundings, and this is what you have to believe. This is what the authentic beginning is. Not at all. He recognized that there may be different points at which this, uh, uh, different points at which you'll find these uh, basic beliefs. But there have to be some. And he cites uh, Americans. You know. Examples of people who couldn't no longer belong to the national community in America who ridicules or rejects the founding of uh, a Brit who laughs at your finest hour um, uh, during the Blitz. Now, here I disagree, and I'll leave aside all the Americans who make fun of the founding uh, and talk about uh, the Blitz. Um, I'm thinking now of a, a, a British movie, I forget the director, made about 15 years ago, Hope and Glory. Um, uh, this was called Open Glory, wasn't it? It, it, was, uh, it was sort of mocking, uh, mocking the standard version of you know uh, the stiff upper that what we did during what we did during the blitz. And I remember it caused some uh, controversy even back in my hometown, Toronto, where this was still strong. Not to mention among my conservative uh, worship uh, idolaters of Winston Churchill. Um, and 
It seems to me that what this person was doing was basically saying, it's time to put that one back in the closet. Um, it's not that he, he doesn't share something, he doesn't share something you know, that a lot of people, maybe most people in, in, in Britain did share and was moving. And indeed, he offended people by making this movie. But he was speaking to him as one heir to a British heritage to uh, others um, and saying, this has gotten stale, put it back, focus on other things. He didn't remove himself from that community. As a matter of fact, if the, the action that he took would only make sense within such a community, I would argue. Now, what I'm not saying that it's easy for those who are members of the national community to go against the grain of what most people feel. National community involves shared feelings of mutual concern and loyalty. If the people for whom you feel concerned for and are loyal to are calling you an ass, are calling you a traitor, that's going to hurt. And not just because of general feelings of social isolation, but because you, you are a member of that community. So there's costs, serious costs being selected in this way. But I don't think that it removes you from national community in the way it's being suggested. OK, let me turn now to um, <coughs> uh, Professor Dukakis' uh, uh, comments. And I think there's two major issues here uh, that he raises, one having to do with the source of conflict in nationalism and the role of political actors in, in fomenting that conflict, and the second having to do with uh, sovereignty and I guess ultimately the issue here is uh, has to do with uh, whether um, pluralism of a, uh, of a sort that uh, I'm somewhat critical of with, with cosmopolitanism, uh, cosmopolitanism is, is something one should be critical of. Okay, so let me begin with the, the question of the source of conflict. Uh, the issue here is where why, if their uh, communal loyalties are constant, and also add to the argument, I, I, I suggest national loyalties aren't something distinctly modern. Um, why do they become a source of focus of conflict, so much so that we talk about nationalism? Uh, we, we, I can say so much so that we, you know, uh, um, that, that, that nationalism is, uh, has become Focus for our understanding of that. Focus of our understanding of the human body in the modern world. Now, uh, it suggested it was suggested that um, what I'm saying is that what must be the source of conflict is that feelings of cultural difference get magnified, intensified, um, and that you know the more different you feel, uh, the stronger you're going to be. Uh, uh, the more hostile you're going to be. Share, uh, share in the space, borders, etc. And that's not, I don't think, how uh, I, I, I want to argue. Um, I have a, a quote in the book uh, where uh, you know, a, a Serbian said he can't breathe the same air as a Croatian. Now, obviously, he wouldn't have said that about, he, he could breathe the same air as a Chinese person, a Canadian. Um, it's not the difference. So much. As a matter of fact, you know, they're obviously much closer culturally to the Croatian than he is to the Canadian or the Chinese person. 
It's rather the connection between a cultural difference that marks a, 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 bound, a boundary of communal loyalty to a sense that something has been done wrong, that he has been wronged by that person, that the person <coughs> with whom is on the other side of a, a cultural loyalty boundary is also someone who has treated him unjustly or has not recognized what he has coming. That's what I think intensifies uh, um, con uh, national conflicts in the modern world. And the reason why we're so prone to them, I argue, is because we're often put into this situation uh, where uh, um, we're so often put into the situation where there's an expectation that our nation's right to control its territory is being challenged, rejected by uh, people who um, frankly have no reason to respect that right. Now, political actors play a tremendous role, absolutely, in mobilizing uh, and intensifying these sentiments, just as uh, political actors uh, play that role in the religious conflicts of the uh, 16th and 17th century. My arguments about moral psychology are, are, are not to say uh, that I can explain how these conflicts took place without you know, uh, focusing attention on the people who mobilized sentiments, mobilized armies, mobilized communities to fight each other. But rather, it focuses on what, how those people could do the mobilization. What tool could they use? Why is it that it's so easy to mobilize national sentiment uh, in the modern and there the, uh, is where I make my, uh, make my argument about the way in which the peculiarity of nationalism, the thing that makes it volatile, the reason why I say to liberals, you know, realize you're playing with fire, um, is that it combines political convictions, I mean, convictions about justice, a sense that other people owe us, they owe us, they owe us um, to a, they, they're obliged to let us take control of our territory. It combines that conviction with a strong sense of group loyalty, excuse me, with a, with a sense of group loyalty. And my argument is that when you combine a sense of justice or injustice with a sense of group loyalty, it's very easy to intensify some sources of moral hostility and also very easy to short circuit sources of moral constraint. I give a lot of examples in the, in the book to try to illustrate that. Um, nationalism is the, so powerful of force because you don't actually have to have a really deep sense of national loyalty, nor do you have to have a fanatical sense of conviction uh, you know, that uh, we're, we're being um, uh, treated unjustly. You can have a you know, fairly mild sense of loyalty and a fairly mild sense of, uh, of, of, of being treated unjustly, but when the two combine to intensify each other. And uh, that's why political actors can be so successful in all different environments, different you know, situations, you know, you know, you know, from, from the Milosevic to the Churchill to the Gandhi, uh, in uh, you know, using nationalism as a mobilizing force. Okay. The second issue um, takes it a little 
further away into uh, uh, from some of the issues we're discussing here. And, you know, it comes out of the, the end of my chap chapter on cosmopolitanism and it's sort of a response to recent arguments by cosmopolitan Democrats in favor of what they call global governance and how they've replaced global, global government with global governance, uh, diversifying uh, sites and sources of government. Um, so it's hard to get into uh, this in, in a lot of detail. Um, in, a, in enough detail, really, to, to, to explain the whole thing. But let me just say one thing about what Professor Kathis said. I don't think that the liberal solution in the modern nation state, uh, liberal constitutionalist solution in the modern nation state, introduced with like, you know, law, uh, by dividing uh, consti the constituent sovereignty of the people from the, uh, which is unlimited, uh, from the actual limited sovereignty of uh, government actors. I don't think it's the best of all possible worlds, hardly. Um, what I do think it does is provide a work, it's provided a workable solution, a surprisingly workable solution to the problem of how you have a singular structure of authority without having the kind of hierarchy at the top that leads to an unlimited actor, Hobbes' sovereign, uh, uh, who overawes us with an unlimited power. Um, and why this is, uh, why this works, has something to do, um, less to do with logic than political imagination, to my mind. There is a surprising sense in which this image of the people as the source of authority, but not the exerciser of authority, has caught and figured strongly in people's imagination. Even though it's a very, very odd sort of idea. Edward Morgan you know, said it's a lot odder, odder than thinking about the monarch as you know, the, the second body of the monarch, the one that never dies. I mean, at least you can imagine a real monarch, but where is this people? What is this people? that doesn't have any institutionalization. Um, yet, it does seem to have caught on, and it does ground and help ground, I think, uh, having a regular, integrated, singular structure of authority, which is not absolute. Now, pluralizing structures of authority in the way that uh, some cosmopolitan Democrats want to do uh, frees us from the fear of the unified state actor. But it doesn't have much to say about how you can deal with the arbitrariness which uh, the Lockean solution was introduced to uh, correct. The arbitrariness that comes from not enough. If you have multiple sources of authority, how do you know and how do you hold accountable uh, the different sources of authority? How do you know who, who takes precedence over what? I have to admit, I'm, I what my reading of cosmopolitan Democrats is so far, at least, they've been rather cavalier about this problem. Um, uh, doesn't mean that it's unsolvable, because like I said, this is not the best of all possible worlds, by far. Uh, uh, and uh, there could be, you know, if, if this solution depended on something so contingent as a, a way the modern political imagination has been shaped that you can you know, accept this image of the people as a constituent sovereign that never actually rules, then there might be a cosmopolitan solution out there as well, but I haven't seen it yet. So I'll do that. Thank you very much. We have 
some time in which to open the floor if people would like to pose questions to any of our speakers. Uh, I'll, let me start. Okay. I, you were too quick for me. I didn't see you start to get too quick. Thank you very much for this kind of something I was last counseling in Singapore. Two quick questions to Professor Yang. Um, when you are, you know, in your response to, to, um, to debaters, I was struck that you didn't mention two things um, in your response. Firstly, um, in relation to the intensification of hostility, <coughs> your thesis is that it is because the uh, difference is cast in or framed in the discourse of rights. That makes it difficult, more intense and intense. Um, in this respect, your view of the um, spread, spread of the idea of human rights, which can be mobilized either way to support nationalism or not support nationalism, uh, if you could uh, comment on this Second point is that I think I read somewhere earlier in your book that you mentioned you emphasized friendship as one of the features of a national solidarity. It is friendship. So it has a bit more leeway for individuals. And I thought that was meant to be more liberal stance towards national solidarity. And I thought that might be another point to be Thank you very much. Yeah, um, thank you for, for, for both points. With regard to uh, rights, um, I don't want to be misread here. Uh, this was not a, a, a critique of rights per se, or of human rights per se, but rather a critique of the application of the idea of rights to dealing with the division of populations and territories. That's what I don't think works, and that's what I don't. What I think is counterproductive. Um, there, uh, the more general problem with rights in liberal thinking is a tendency to identify justice with, you know, rights. Say that if it's just, you know, uh, for something to be right, you must have a right. To be wrong means you don't have, you know, uh, you've been denied your right. Um, and I think that's an impoverished view of justice. And you see the poverty of that view of justice when you deal with you know, uh, um, the issues that are arising most national conflicts. There are many things that can very well be dealt with uh, by human rights, um, but not the division of populations and territories. So that's the point I want to make. Then with regard to friendship, yeah, okay, so thanks for bringing that up because uh, indeed my emphasis on social, so when I talk about the bonds that, uh, that bring, bring members of the community together, I make a point of this, you know, um, describing them as a form of social friendship rather than unity or solidarity or any of the other more familiar terms. And the reason why I do that is because I want to emphasize that what makes a community are people who are different in some way, sharing something that bridges their difference. It bridges their difference, it doesn't erase their difference. And friendship here means you know, the connection, the feelings of mutual concern and loyalty among people who bridge their differences in this way. Have, you know, once one you know, recognizes that, as you point out, that makes community <coughs> much less threatening to 
uh, self-styled modernist, you know, modern individualists than it would otherwise be. But the reason why community is so threatening for most liberals is because they constructed it as the non-liberal, non-modern, what we've left behind in the Gemeinschaftlich world of blood and soil, uh, as an alternative to the non-modern, non-liberal individualist world. Um, and thereby exaggerated, to my mind, the holism, the unification, the experience of community. Whereas community, I think, is ordinarily experienced this way, which isn't just to suggest that there aren't occasions when people push for something more. And I, I talk about this. Yeah, so um, I also have a question for Professor Yuck. And it's a question of clarification on your idea of the nation and it's just based on your exchange with David Miller. Mm -hmm. So if I understood it correctly, nationality involves two things. One is uh, common heritage, uh, cultural heritage, and the other is fellow feelings. Uh, at least that was the way in which David portrayed it and he didn't seem to object to it. And then along the discussion, I got the sense that your understanding ended up being too capacious and too restrictive at the same time. So too restrictive because when you were talking about the French woman, um, you seemed to think that because she had chosen uh, to immerse herself into the French cultural heritage, that somehow couldn't make her a French national. But I, I mean, I'm Italian, and I can, I've lived in the UK for a while. If at some point, you know, I come to love Marmite and Sunday Rose and put the poppy on my, um, on my jacket and celebrate all of the national, um, whatever, the, the special days and really come to take pride in the achievements uh, of Britain and also shame for whatever it did wrong, would I be a national on your account? And too capacious, because, I mean, I don't know whether this is a good example, but I was thinking, um, you know, you could imagine a group of mafiosi or the descendants of mafiosis to have a common cultural heritage and also pretty well-developed fellow feelings for, for each other. But I don't necessarily think that I would want to call them a nation. And so would that be um, the case? Yeah. So with regard to the first point, um, what I was trying to, and what I try to emphasize there is it's the sense of receiving something that sharing the reception uh, uh, that I'm emphasizing with regard to inheritance. So national community is you know, a, a, a something that is what most distinctive feature of it is a sense of, sense of sharing something over time. It's like you share a you can you share a contingent time map with people. There's some, some connection back to the Okay. Now uh, rather than you believe X, Y, and Z. Now, you could, I imagine, at some point, at a certain, you know, at a certain time after your, you know, your experience here, I imagine, ultimately, you know, take that on yourself, if possible. You might join in in that. But it's not going to be because you said, aha, Britain is, Britain is the, 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 the place where the language of Shakespeare was, you know, started, and I want to be I want to share in a culture which is expressed, you know, in this high, in a high way. But rather, you come to take on something that you share with people, other people who have inherited this. And you sort of, you know, it's still going to be harder for you. 
because in fact you you you've inherited other things as well. Um, uh, so um, it's not going to be because you know you have some high version of British culture that you want. No, but you know, yeah, you actually got used to Marmite, and you know. Um, not yet. Not <laughs> but even if you don't get used to Marmite, you get you know you could get used to you know well having to deal with like other you know Brits who don't like Marmite having to deal with it. Okay, that's part of the habit. Okay. Um, now the two uh, uh, two capacious the the, 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 the mafios. Okay. Um, the thing with the mafios. Every every group has a history. Uh, the example I use in the book is I say, you know, but even even, uh, even associations of salesmen, you know, have history. You use the best, you know, best uh, best salesman ever to grace a used car is the car lot. Herb was the guy. We remember Herb. Um, so having a history, there's nothing distinctive about that. What's distinctive about national community? is that it's the sharing of the legacy that makes you a member of the community rather than any particular activity. The mafiosi, when it brings them together, they're organized to do something. It's an organization. Well, actually, this is getting a little complicated once we introduce the, uh, the concept of family. It doesn't matter, but leave the family. <laughs> no, no, I mean, seriously, you have to study as a community as well as an organization. Um, but uh, there is an activity that, there, uh, that is distinctive to that uh, uh, you know, community. It's very important in my argument that not to think of a na national community, na to think of a nation as a community rather than an organization. In the modern world, it's a form of community that is many, in most cases, sought to organize itself in, in certain ways, but it's not an organization itself. We have three questions lined up over here. Yeah, do you mind if I ask? Have to go yes. <coughs> you mentioned lineage at one point in the term common cultural heritage. How does that relate to something like Walker Connor's idea that we are, that the nation is a group of people who are ancestrally related to it, and that this is what gives it power, and also the passion to kill and be killed? Okay, so I think Connor. It's always been it's been right to point out to this that the strength of national community comes not so much from the things that we do, but the sense of where it puts us in time that we're inheritors. We move back, for That's what gives it uh, what uh, Stephen Grosby uh, calls it. It's temporal death, um, uh, and everybody, not even the most liberal nationalists in book. Our four score and seven years ago, our fathers, you know, forced this nation. So Lincoln is, you know, you know seeing it as sort of a virtual family. But Connor, I think, understands that inter intergenerational sense of connection and temporal depth to look at in, in terms of the model that is most familiar to us. The family, that's the one where it's indisputable. We all recognize it. What makes us a, uh, members of a family? That you know we are connected horizontally to people who share a vertical connection to someone in the past, right? We're descendants from, um, and we're all we're familiar with that version of intergenerational community. And so it's natural that we both that we use that 
conception of intergenerational community to make sense of the nation, and also to describe, to give, you know, uh, uh, to describe and celebrate the nation, to talk about sons and daughters and motherlands and fatherlands and the like. But I think in in actuality, we've got a the nation, national community is an intergenerational community that is like the family in terms of being intergenerational, but it's not based on <coughs> what's driving here is driving the force. The driving force here is not a sense of shared or even fictionally fictional ancestry, but a sense of um, shared place and inheritance, you know, a, 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 and lineage of some kind of you know, uh, uh, you know cultural connection. So that, that's what I, that's what I want to suggest. That you know, Connor was right to talk about intergenerationality. That's the key to the strength of the nation, a sense of her place, contingent places in history. But I think he leapt too quickly to the family model because it's the most familiar one and it's so you know drippingly obvious in the history. Can't help but use it. Uh, John and then Daphne and I think that'll bring us um, and I enjoy the book greatly, and I'm going to have to be very crude here in short question. It seems to me you have basically two phases. There's a nation as a community, and there's one thing that is importantly not in its community, which is politics and power. And then there's nationalism, which projects the notion of power onto this community. I agree entirely with the second. My problem is with the first. What kind of community can exist with intergenerational continuity, with constant senses of myths, and no power. The only communities I can imagine are objects of power. In other words, I can imagine certain kinds of clans, tribes, lineages, towns, villages, all of which would fit your definition of community, but they wouldn't fit your definition of nation, because nation, for example, you say is inclusive, but objects of power would find it difficult to actually think in these inclusive terms because they would have to include those who are exercising power over them. And let me just give one example why I think this leads you into a, uh, a difficult situation, and it's David Miller's example about how nations are not mingled. I agree entirely, but why are they sometimes a power mingled? Why does it appear that Hungarians and Romanians live on the same territory? Because one lived as an object of the power of the other in class-divided societies. But could those class-divided communities have thought of themselves as nations? How can this powerless social object have sufficient continuity, sufficient, I know you say not solidarity, but sufficient identity that of a generation of a generation it can actually have this sense of identity? My answer, of course, is that it doesn't exist. It's what the nationalists do and then project back, taking these other forms of community, village, town, lineage or whatever, and then calling it nation. And what you're doing is buying in to that projection. Right. Right. Okay, good. Actually, but that wasn't crude at all. That <laughs> <laughs> no, puts it very, very well. Okay. Um, first point, non-politically organized nations. So you don't by any sense of community in say an ancient Greek, you know, sense of you know, you know, uh, community which is not based on political organization. You know, that's my that's my you know my, my, my standing you know, contrast to the non-organized you know form of national community. Um, uh, 
you don't, I, I take you don't buy it. I, I do buy it, but I mean, I'm getting into another argument okay. about holding power as opposed to being an object of power. Okay, okay. Um, with regard to, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for intermingling we, you know, didn't talk about. That's certainly one of them. I mean, the other, the major one is most, you know, uh, uh, when nationalism comes on the scene, well, you know, we're, we're dealing with the result of, uh, we're dealing with the world that's, you know, of borders that are, uh, 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 that are, you know, um, and, 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 and peoples that have moved around within, within borders that reflect imperial, you know, projects of various, various sorts, um, you know, monarchical, you know, marriages and sales of territory, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that. But you're absolutely right that, you know, one source of mingling has to do with class division. Um, and there wouldn't be any strong sense of national community where there's a very, you know, where that is an organizing principle that, that's, you know, uh, class division. Which is one reason why I think national community has become so much stronger and more salient in the, in the modern world to the extent to which uh, case uh, and uh, especially aristocratic understandings of class divisions uh, have, you know, have, have, have fallen by the wayside. Uh, um, what, you know, it, this particular, this particular way of, pe uh, of people uh, relating to each other, bridging differences, becomes much more plausible to the extent that aristocratic case uh, divisions are, are challenged, and then your division between Hungarians and Romanians, you know, on, on, on shared territory becomes uh, uh, much more understood than, you know, a national division, which it wasn't before. I agree with you entirely. Um, we're not at risk of being turfed out there are two more questions. So uh, we've reached 7.30, but I think we'll keep going. So Daphne and then John. Hi, uh, just a quick question. Um, thanks for this. I, I must admit, I'm not a political theorist at all, so I'm trying to get my head around this idea, but the comparativist in me is immediately trying to apply to real cases comparatively. So I think my question is very related to Professor Kukathas. How does your theory explain variation? This is what I quite can't understand. And I mean, you said in your, in your talk, uh, you explain in a way the tool that political actors have and especially in, in cases where there's the perception that they've been treated unjustly, but that could be the case everywhere. How do you explain the cause, but also the protraction of conflict and the completely different trajectories that would take place if what you're saying is really just this one same thing that applies sort of everywhere, if you know what I mean? I don't see how you explain variation in different cases in very different ways. Um, right, okay, but the uh, variation of what level, that's, I guess, you know, Talking, um, you know, I think we were the way in which uh, Professor Kukov has raised it was at the, was at the mo almost the most abstract level. That is to say, there are communal feelings, right? And then what variation explains why communal feelings lead, you know, in a particular direction? Now, the basic question, okay, so as basic as I, I, I would make it at that level, general, there are nations before nationalism. There's national community. There's a form, you know, in my understanding, and the question has to be why. In terms of the most broadest question about variation: Why does this particular form of community, which it was not particularly politically salient, not a particularly a focus, to my mind, for uh, 
construction of, uh, 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 of standards of justice or injustice become the, the, such a focus of, you know, of political conflict and contestation. The very basic argument that I make, <laughs> it has to do with popular sovereignty. Um, it has to do with a change in the way we understand political legitimacy. But not just democratic popular sovereignty, but um, the, the, the democratic sovereignty, but the, the notion uh, that uh, uh, that peoples, uh, groups of the individuals who inhabit territory, um, have the right to control, uh, have the final say over the organization of, uh, uh, of political authority within that uh, group. Okay, that's very very schematic, um, but the the basic argument in terms of variation is the new thing on the block is the introduction of this notion of popular sovereignty. And I argue that where popular sovereignty goes in the modern world, nationalism follows. It's not the only you know, thing that explains what happened, happened uh, <coughs> only thing that can explain the rise of nationalism, but every, every new landmark in the spread of popular sovereignty, 
I hope it can. Uh, you're right, though, that it's not the folk, you know, the, uh, both the emergence of new, you know, new, new nations, or new national communities, um, and the conflicts, you know, both out of which they emerge and which their emergence sometimes, you know, creates, is not really the primary subject, uh, subject of the book. Um, but I hope that my understanding uh, the way in which I understand uh, the tool, the way I understand community gives one of the tools to deal with that problem as well, I would hope. Both because uh, I talk about um, uh, different, you know, different focuses for community, you know, for community, national versus others, and like say But also that, you know, um, the national, you know, uh, the focus of, you know, uh, uh, of one's sense of national community is always something that can be selected from any number of, uh, you know, possible sources. You know, um, you know, uh, Ukrainian, Russian, Pan-Slav. Um, uh, there's always a finite number of possibilities, but there are more than one, you know, more, more than one possibility, and this events. Um, traumatic events like the dissolution of empires and the collapse, you know, of states, uh, <coughs> create situations in which um, different forms of attachment, different forms of communal attachment on the one hand, and different focuses for an understanding uh, of <coughs> cultural inheritance uh, on the other. Traumatic events create circumstances in which some 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 attachments become more salient than others. So I hope there's a tools there. For that, I don't want to think that my understanding of social friendship is uh, uh, as uh, static as you're suggesting it would be. But you're absolutely right that that's not the focus of the argument that I presented before. Okay. Uh, well, I'd let this run about 10 minutes over because there was so much to be said on all sides. Um, uh, I'd just like to say, uh, you know, I think we did a response of very nuanced and high powered political theorizing, political philosophizing. Uh, liberal thinking, uh, uh, and uh, it remains to just say thank you to uh, all our presenters. Thank you very much. The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfill two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership. Our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our programme of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash events.